Hey, welcome to night school. And it turns out we passed 400 and I didn't, I didn't even think about it because it means nothing. It means nothing. Um, do it. I'm planning an every night to school night. I thought about it tonight, but I've had too much to do. Um, there'll be an every night to school night before it's officially winter. That's my goal. It's time to do an every night to school night. I just want to give a little a little shout here, as they say, to a, a loyal listener. You know, we like the loyal listeners here. There's listeners and there's loyal listeners. And here we like the loyal listeners because we, we like it when they're loyal. We just like it when they're loyal. No, a loyal listener and friend of the show in Canada, Jonathan. Jonathan. I believe he pronounces his name Jonathan because he's French-Canadian. But he uh, let me know today that he purchased his first Bang energy drink. He lost his Bang virginity. Not that kind of Bang, but he lost his Bang virginity. And he purchased two cans. I'm wondering if they had the deal. I'm wondering if Canada has the two-for-four deal. I've still seen it in a few places here, maybe a couple places, but as I mentioned on another episode, if nothing else shows you that inflation is happening, that it's real, it's the fact that the bang, the time-honored Bang Energy Drink 2 for 4 deal, which was universal and could be found at every single store, is now 2 for 4 something. I don't know the exact number because I don't want to know. All I know is it's gotten higher. That's to, as clear of a sign as you could possibly uh, give me that inflation is real. It's the, the cost of the Bang Energy Drink two for four deal has gone up. I don't know if he got the two for four deal up there in Canada. What I know is that he bought two Bang Energy Drinks. And that means I've sold a number of cans of Bang simply through my advocacy. Simply through my advocacy, I have now sold a number of cans of Bang. And, and I was trying to think of what the total total number of people, I would say it's been five or six people that I know of. I think it might be a little higher. It's, it's five, six, or seven people, I bet. But a number of people have contacted me over the last year, year and a half, and they've let me know that they have tried Bang Energy Drink and that they did so because I talk about it, because I advocate for Bang. So just wanted to give a little shout to Jonathan. Johnny Tan. Wanted to give a little shout out to Johnny Tan up in Montreal for his Bang. Lost his Bang virginity today. You know, what I wanted to talk about, though, is I was thinking about that go-to talking point that you've been hearing probably for the last decade, maybe longer, but it's kind of ramped up in recent years. I haven't heard it for a while, actually. It might have kind of died out as many other problems have become magnified. But you used to hear uh, kind of baby boomer conservatives make this point, and they thought it was a very clever point, which was... Yeah, well, they're the generation that grew up getting participation trophies. Oh, you know what the problem is with millennials? and uh, A lot of it was directed toward millennials. I don't think anybody realized that Zomers were real. 
I don't think they realized there was any distinction between millennials and Zomers until relatively recently. But uh, what you used to hear directed at millennials is they, they just grew up where that, in that, that period where everybody gets a trophy. Now, you know what the problem with millennials is? Is they grew up in a time where everybody gets a trophy. Oh, they got a participation trophy. That's what's wrong with them. People think that's a very clever point. And you know what? I get what they're saying. I get what they're saying when they say that. Because it does relate to this idea of equity of outcome that has become popular in mainstream politics. It does play into this idea that people want congratulations for virtually nothing. Because, I mean, that's the idea, is that you're getting awarded for nothing. When, you know, being born is enough of an award. Reward. Is it an award or a reward? It's both. You are awarded a life. You are rewarded with life. No, but I understand the point they're making. It's not that I reject, like, what they're getting at when they say that. The whole, oh, you, you, you kids, you, you, the problem with you is all of you got a participation trophy. You know, when they say that, I get the general point and I don't completely disagree with it. But there's more to it than that. And uh, it does play into the idea that, you know, this idea of equity of outcome where everybody needs to get the same result regardless of what they do. Everybody on a societal level needs to be living the same quality of life. They need to attain the same career positions. They need to have the same lives, essentially, regardless of what goes into those lives, regardless of merit. You know, I I see where that kind of connects, and I also see the idea where people have kind of come to expect a congratulations for doing little to nothing and that plays into an idea I've talked about and this is one of my criticisms of social media or as you know I'm hesitant to outright criticize social media too much I think the criticisms are just apparent and undeniable But I also feel that too much emphasis is placed on social media as if it's a cause rather rather than a symptom. And the good aspects of it are often ignored because it's such a cool talking point to denounce social media. And academics act like they think like to me when people say like, oh, you know what the problem today is? It's all this social media That's about on the same level of sophistication as, you know what the problem with them is, is that everybody got a participation trophy. Those ideas are about equally sophisticated, which is to say unsophisticated. Where there's something true about both of those statements, but people rest too much on that, those ideas. They rest too much, and they, it's a little too, speaking of congratulations, it's a little too self-congratulatory when people say that and it focuses on symptoms rather than causes and also misses the bigger picture but what i was going to get to is just that that idea of a congratulations unearned 
because when someone congratulates me for something that I don't feel I did anything, you know, when I, when I don't feel that I actually did any significant work towards something or I didn't do something particularly good and someone pats me on the head or gives me any kind of congratulations, it gives me kind of a sick feeling. And that's happened at jobs where I've said on the show before, you know, the only thing worse than getting criticized for something you did that was wrong is getting complimented for something that you didn't do or that wasn't good. You know, it just doesn't feel right. It's like you're benefiting in some way, but you didn't deserve it and you know that. So I always feel that way when I get rewarded or awarded, rewarded or awarded for something that I don't feel I deserved. It gives me kind of a sick feeling. It's like a false compliment, even if I benefit. You know, I've mentioned the story on here before about how I got a raise at work once because one of the executives, the CEO actually, walked by my desk and saw me typing really hard. And sometime later, I got called into a meeting and the boss was like, you know what, you just work so hard. You know, there was, there was a day where I walked by your desk. There was a day where I walked by your desk and you were just typing so hard. And I was just like, he works so hard. And he had no idea. I could have been typing nonsense. I could have had Windows Notepad open just writing like A, C, D, G, Y, T. I'm just looking at my keyboard right now. I could have just been writing complete gibberish, but he saw me typing fast. And even though I greatly appreciated the raise, I'm not going to turn down a raise. It's still, there was something that it made me feel kind of sick. Because it was like I was getting patted on the head for something that I feel like really didn't warrant a pat on the head. And I love a good pat on the head. I just want to earn it. But actually, I recorded a song many years ago called A Congratulations Unearned. This is about a decade ago. It was an ambient song on guitar. I don't think I ever did anything with it. But it was called A Congratulations Unearned. And the, the title came from this idea. Because it's just, it's not a good feeling. And so that's sort of what a participation trophy is. When people say it's, it's basically a, an unearned congratulations. And, uh, you know, social media, though, what I was going to get out with that finally is people have gotten so used to getting likes. Because as I've said before, that's one of my biggest criticisms of social media. Or I don't like the like system. I don't like the like system. I don't think that was a good addition. It created an expectation. You know, I was talking on that episode about a month ago about selling the rubber gorilla on eBay, the famous rubber gorilla, that false idol, that false idol, that rubber gorilla I sold on eBay and how because I didn't make $80 as I expected, I made 67. It gave me this greed of expectation. Where because I knew that that gorilla sometimes sold for 80, I now expected 80. Meanwhile, I made a killing on it. 67, that's a killing. That's what we call a killing. So that's the greed of expectation. And I feel like the like system on social media has done something similar. Where it's created 
an expectation that you will receive a certain amount of feedback, a certain amount of reinforcement, of support, hollow support. Because it's not like there's any value. I mean, sometimes there is. Like about a decade ago when people were using Facebook more, I remember occasionally getting a, a like from a girl that I liked. And it meant a little more. So it's not always completely empty. And sometimes that meant something. Sometimes a girl liking your post was sort of her way of subtly letting you know, or if, or if she likes all your posts. She's liking all my posts. Hey, Dad, Dad, there's a girl and she's liking all my posts. Should I ask her out? No, son, I'm going to ask her out. No, son, I'm going to ask her out. She's liking all your posts, son, because she really likes your dad, me. The reason that hot girl likes all your posts, son, is because she's, she's really trying to impress me, your dad. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask her out now. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask her out before you. It's a really sick joke there. Funny. I like that one. Um, but uh, <laughs> I like my joke there. Uh, but uh, <laughs> uh but, it, it, you know, the social media like system created this expectation where it's like you post something with this kind of greedy expectation that maybe you'll get a certain amount of measurable support for it, measurable acknowledgement. And so that's one of the issues with it for me. That's one of the bigger issues. The two big issues for me are that the like system. Because it also signifies some kind of status too. Like other people can now see that as well. And other people might evaluate you based on that. Girls do. I've overheard some very interesting conversations. Candid conversations that women friends have had. Where it's very evident that they are paying attention. They, they are noticing how many likes... A man gets on his post. How many followers he has? I told that story on here. How a friend of mine had had a few drinks and was talking to another woman. And I overheard her mention. She's like, I should have known he was no good when I saw that he had so few followers. This isn't a shallow person either. Which was even more significant. But I'm aware of the fact that women evaluate a man based on his based on the response he receives on social media in some cases. I'm not saying this is a rule, but they do notice and they look. They look to see who liked it. You do. do You, you probably do that too. <laughs> you, you. I'm talking to you here. <laughs> I don't do that at this point. I don't like the liking system, so it's really of little consequence to me. I barely, I rarely and barely even check to see who liked something if I do post something these days for the very reasons I'm stating here, because I don't like that system. So that's one of my criticisms. The other one is just the non chrono the way that social media took information and it made it non-chronological, which I think has caused huge issues with the way we process information 
and it's allowed them to manipulate information deliberately and otherwise. Some of it's just those supernatural algorithms doing their magic, messing with your mind, the, the supernatural algorithms playing a little game, doing a little dance on your mind. But it's also deliberate as well, we know. We know. But anyway, I want to get back to participation trophies here. Uh, well, just to finish that thought, you know, what I was going to say is just social media, the, you know, one of the biggest issues with that symptom, with the symptom that is social media, is just that it's kind of created this expectation that you will receive a certain amount of feedback, maybe even admiration, congratulations, some kind of response, some kind of measurable response for doing relatively nothing, just for saying something, for making a stupid comment, for posting some relatively insignificant photo of your life. And I'm not saying that in a mean way. I'm just saying it's the truth. It's like you get a response for something that in any other time is inconsequential. Like even if you had somebody in your living room during the, my early years when I was growing up, you could show somebody photos, you know, a family photo album, and they might just look through it and not say anything. And in the early internet, and you just put photos up or put ideas up, you might not get a response. At most, in the earliest days of social media, or you might get a comment and that meant somebody wanted to interact based on it. But there was, people weren't just clicking a button to let you know they were acknowledging you. So basically, there's this expectation of acknowledgement. And as human beings, we get greedy for acknowledgement. And oftentimes, there's no limit to how much acknowledgement we want. And so the participation trophy sort of plays into that idea where it creates sort of a greed in people where we expect to be awarded something simply for being there. It's like a party favor. But that's also why I'm saying it's not such a horrible thing. Like people make it out like that created this horrible psychological issue in people's brains when that was just a symptom. The participation trophy trend was just a symptom of larger issues going on. And I think the people who say, oh, the problem with millennials is they all got participation trophies growing up. You know, I think they understand that they're just using that as one example. They're identifying one symptom of a larger issue. But people got so high on that idea. They got so high on, on the participation trophy idea and just copied each other. Like somebody used that as an example, and it was probably an epiphany. For many people when they heard it, I'd be curious who that was. I'd be curious who popularized that. I wonder if it was a public figure or if it was just something that made its rounds among the people. But obviously it stood out to people and they like to say it. But everybody who has said that, everybody who's pointed out the whole participation trophy phenomenon, they, they say it as if they're the one who came up with it, which I think is one of the reasons why it rubs me the wrong way. It's almost like they want a participation trophy for pointing out that a generation of children grew up with this expectation that they get a trophy for doing nothing. It's almost like that person wants a participation trophy for pointing that out, which is funny.
Meanwhile, they didn't even come up with it. But I grew up during that era. One of the reasons I want to talk about this is I was thinking about this earlier today. I grew up during that era where I played team sports my entire childhood and into my teenage years. And we always got that participation trophy at the end of the season. There would be a banquet. And it was nothing grandiose. It would usually be held at a pizzeria. They would rent out part of a pizzeria, maybe a a school gymnasium, and they'd have probably pizza. It was generally a pizza party. And now that I think about it, I'm trying to remember. I mean, I had a lot of team banquets over the years because every team had one. I'm trying to think if we ever had anything except for pizza because it was either we would rent out a school gymnasium, usually an elementary school. We would rent out an elementary school gymnasium on a weekend night, maybe. And they would order pizzas or we would go to a pizzeria. I don't remember any exceptions to the pizza part of it. Uh, what You know what's wrong with you kids is that you grew up thinking that just for doing anything, you get a pizza and a participation trophy. Um, but I, I went to many of these banquets and they were just... It, what it was is it was acknowledging that you did something, but it's it's not nothing. Like playing, the reason I have a problem with the participation trophy thing is because playing on a team is not nothing. And the fact that you came to practice, you played through all the games, win or lose, because you would have a banquet no matter what. I was on some football teams, some youth football teams that were the shittiest teams in the world. I was on a team one year that didn't win a single game, and we were awful. We were like the little giants if they never became good. And uh, we still had a banquet. We still had awards. But what's funny about it is that it wasn't just the participation trophies that they handed out. They would also hand out merit-based trophies as well. So they kind of got around that idea. It wasn't just that they gave out one trophy to each kid for doing nothing, for just showing up, which again, I think having the discipline and commitment, even if your parents are forcing you to do it, because some kids would quit, especially in football. You know, at the start of the season, you'd have more kids on the team and some kids just couldn't handle it. You know, you would start practicing in the summer. It's not like it was torture, but it was tough for a lot of kids. It was the, for me, for sure. It was the toughest physical activity you'd ever done. You're wearing a helmet, you're wearing pads, you're hitting each other, you're getting bruised, you're having to run, wearing all that stuff in the heat of summer. You know, it's pretty tough. And yeah, it was probably tougher in years past. Like my dad has told me stories about playing football when he was a kid and the coaches wouldn't even give them water breaks. You know, some of that might be like, oh, uphill both ways sort of talk. I believe it though. So the coaches, it's not like they tortured us. It's not like they were cruel in most cases, but it was still tough. Even without cruelty, playing football is tough, especially if you're a kid and you've never done anything like that. Because I went from playing t-ball and uh, soccer to playing youth football. And the difference in practice was just, you know, it, it was clear. Like the contrast between a soccer practice and a football practice was so sharp. Football was so much more grueling in every possible way. So when a kid starts playing youth football, it's tough. And a lot of kids quit at the beginning of the season. 
And so the fact that you made it all the way through the season, especially if you were on a losing team, because there was no joy to that. I was on a team that sucked so bad, we went our first number of games without even scoring a touchdown. It was my first year of youth football. And uh, one game, we ended up losing the game. It was against a tough team. But our running back, is, it was a kid named Nate Lee, and his brother got shot to death about a year or two later, an accident. They were playing with a gun, and his brother got shot to death. They, they uh, duct-taped a laser, a laser pointer to a handgun in their apartment parking lot, and they were just joking around, aiming the laser pointer at each other, and guess what? The gun went off, and he, his brother died. I, I had met his brother. He came to our games. Isaac Lee was the brother's name. And uh, But anyway, during this game, our team had not scored a single point all year. Because little kids, for whatever reason, we can't kick field goals. I guess we just don't have the legs for it. We. I'm still a little, I'm still a little kid. But little kids don't have the legs for field goals. So you have to score touchdowns. And we just could not score a touchdown. We were so terrible. And this one game, Nate Lee just broke off. It was a long touchdown run. And we all ran with him. All of us ran with him. And when we, when we knew that he was going to score, we were just so unbelievably happy. Like we feel like we, we felt like we won that game. Just the fact that we finally scored a touchdown was winning to us. And so when, when you're on a team like that and you're a kid and you don't really understand the spiritual value of just sticking with something, when you, when you don't understand the greater value of sticking with something, win or lose, it feels amazingly good to win little battles like that where you guys scored a touchdown or at the end of the season, you have a fun little banquet, you all get trophies. But what's funny about that is everybody talks about the participation trophy that everybody gets, but the coaches still gave out merit-based trophies. So they just increased the number of trophies. You know, it was like we all got one, and then the players who deserve trophies anyway, the people who would have gotten trophies 50 years ago before the era of participation trophies, they got an extra trophy. <laughs> so it really, the system really didn't even matter, you know, but every kid got to take home a trophy. And I think that, you know, I don't think that was such a terrible thing like they make it out to be. Because every kid was part of that team. Every kid stuck it out. They came to practice, and practices sucked. It wasn't playing in a game. You know, practices sucked. They were tough. You went every single day. Every single day of the week, we had football practice. And, you know, and we liked video games and, you know, eating Cheetos on our asses. You know, we liked all that stuff, too. We were children in the 90s. We like TV, we like movies, we like uh, sitting around. So to commit to what, like two hours every single day after school? I remember feeling this sense of just complete dread, and I loved football. I had a true passion for football at a young age. But I remember like coming home from school and having to get dressed up in my football gear and my mom driving me to football practice and just feeling this dread. And I'm just thinking, I'd rather stay home and drink Pepsi. I'd rather, I'd rather just stay home and drink Pepsi and play Final Fantasy 3. But no, you know, you get taken to football practice, so you deserve some acknowledgement. You deserve some positive reinforcement by having a banquet and getting a little trophy. 
And then again, though, it's like merit is was still always acknowledged because they gave extra trophies to the really good players. And I got them a couple times. You know, the star of the team would get MVP. So we had an MVP. I got best lineman a couple years. That's me bragging. That's me bragging about uh, the time that I joined the NFL. No, but I got best lineman a couple years. So it's like merit got acknowledged. It's just that merit came in the form of two trophies rather than just one for the really good players. And so that alone shows you that the idea of merit was still part of it. There was still an extra level of congratulations given to the good players. And they would also give one for like, if there was a player who, you know, one year I had a kid on my team, I think I was in junior high. His name was Kyle Betty. And he had some sort of severe physical issue. He could not play the sport. Like his arms were curled up. He talked in a very strange voice. Like I wouldn't even know where to begin. It was almost like muscular dystrophy. It was severe. Like I'm not just talking about autism or something. I'm talking about like his body was like curled up. He could stand, but his arms were like curled up against his chest and, he, and they stayed there all the time. And his head was bent to the side. And he was very aware. Like, I think there were cognitive issues in addition to the physical issues. But he talked. He couldn't talk, really. And he had, uh, you know, severe muscular issues. Almost like MS or something at a very young age. But he was there, and he came to every practice, and his dad was an assistant coach. And I think they might have given him an award for, like, uh, you know, most motivational player. And you know what? He deserved it. They weren't just handing out an award to a retard or something. You know what I mean? Like, it wasn't just, like, some, you know, made-for-TV movie. Like, Kyle Betty was a kid with some sort of severe physical and mental issue but he played for the football team. You know, we didn't put him in the games. The coaches didn't play him in the games because he couldn't function enough. But he came to every single practice and he stood on the sidelines and he supported the team. And just the fact that he was out there, I mean, it brings a tear to my eye. Just the fact that Kyle Betty and his dad were there at every single practice and game supporting the team. That's what it, that's what people are missing when they don't have that experience. That's why I'm an advocate of team sports. And I can tell when people didn't play them and they and I can tell when people resent them or think that it's just a bunch of jocks, just a bunch of assholes. You know, I think about a guy like Kyle Betty and that nobody gave him shit. Nobody thought he was weak. He, we, it was a little confusing and weird for us. It was a little awkward, I guess I would say. But we all, you know, we would hit him on the pads, like we would hit his shoulder pads, like we would anybody else. We would give him like a high five, you know, even though his hands were, were kind of in a strange position, curled inward and stuff, like we would still interact with him because he was our teammate. And so I think they gave him a motivational trophy like most motivational player or something, and he deserved it. So, I mean, this idea of participation trophies being some 
perfect analogy for everything that's wrong with millennials and zomers and i don't know what goes on in youth sports today i have no idea you know it's it's kind of faulty in its own way even though i understand what i understand the point they're trying to make and don't wholly disagree with it there was a lot more going on and merit was acknowledged in various ways like the player who scored all of our touchdowns he got the mvp award the lineman who carried his literal weight, the best, got the award. I think hardest hitter or best tackler was probably another one they would give to like one of the linebackers. You know, and they, there weren't a ton of them, but they would give those out. And so merit was acknowledged as part of that. And I'm wondering if people even know what they're talking about when they talk about this system. I mean, maybe there were schools, maybe there were teams that only gave out one trophy to each kid and didn't acknowledge the good players. But in every single sport, every single team I played, there was a level of acknowledgement for players that were exceptional. So exceptional be- you know, behavior was acknowledged. It's just that exceptional players got two trophies. So there was still like a material... You know, there was still a material reward, you could say, for doing well. It's just they added to the number. But there were a lot of players on the teams that sucked or didn't seem like they belonged there. But I, I look back and nobody ever treated those guys like they shouldn't be there. There were kids that the teammates didn't really like for various reasons. But that wasn't based on how good they were or anything like that. Like, I think about a guy who played on my team. You know, I've been making these jokes lately about eBay, where I call it EB. And every time I say that, I think of this guy I knew named EB. He played on one of my teams in junior high, I think in ninth grade, which in my school system wasn't high school yet. It was technically it counted toward high school. But you weren't going to the high school yet. You were actually going to a junior high. And uh, so in my ninth grade team, there was a guy named Ebi. And it was short for Ibrahim. He was a, a Muslim. He was a Muslim. A Muslim. Ebi was a Muslim. His true name was Ibrahim. And what's interesting about him is he was about six foot two by the time he was 14 and he had a full beard, but he was a white man. He was a pure white man. And you wouldn't think so because it's like he had a full beard and he had glasses and he was about six foot two, heavy guy. I would say he was probably at least 250 pounds, 260 pounds, maybe a little more. Chubby guy. And he didn't always he wasn't always in my school system so he just showed up one day in junior high and everybody thought he was a dad you know sometimes that gets exaggerated like oh so and so looks old oh he's really tall and he he looks old this guy looked like a dad showed up with a backpack on that's what we thought because he was in just like a polo shirt like a like a striped polo shirt and khakis with just this kind of dad haircut and a full beard. Like, I'm not talking about a patchy teenage pubic beard. He had a full beard. 
And it's interesting that he was, because the thing was, the story was, was that his family was English. Like, I believe his parents, I don't know if they were American, but there was a story where his dad went to England and converted to Islam, but they were white people. And I always thought it was strange that they were ethnically white and converted to Islam. And he had a full beard. And then so did his little brother. He had a little brother who didn't look nearly as old. Like, and they both had black hair too. They both had very dark hair. And he had a younger brother who also was able to grow a full beard at a young age. So it's almost like they were Arab in spirit. Like you think about Islam has a rule, I believe, about how you must have a beard. I know that certain branches of Islam have a rule about not cutting your beard. And the Arab men can often grow beards at a much younger age than the average white man. And so it was interesting to me that this white Muslim family, both the sons were able to grow full beards. It's almost like being around Islam so much, growing up in an Islamic household, led to them being able to grow dense facial hair at a young age. You know, it's uh, mind over matter. But anyway, EB was on my football team one year and he was six foot two, you know, realistically, probably 270 pounds. He was a big guy. And you would think that that would lend itself to football. But to be honest, he sucked. He didn't have a killer instinct. You know, he didn't have that killer instinct because, you know, I did. Like I was much smaller, like I played the same position he did. And I was about several inches shorter. I mean, I'm probably 5'10", maybe close to 5'11 at the most. I don't know what my exact height is. I don't, know what, I don't know what I peaked out at. I have no idea what my final height was. But I think it's like 5'10 and some change, as they say. Um, so I was never a tall guy, and I was fat. Hence, being on the offensive and defensive line... But I had a killer instinct. Like, not a ferocious, like I was out there like an animal, but it's like I understood the spirit of competition. I like to be in that physical confrontation. I like to be out there to get somebody. I like going after the quarterback. I liked being, like, in the front lines of the offense just trying to shove a guy out of the way so that my running back can go behind me or whatever. You know, I enjoyed that. Like that aggression, I, I wasn't, other than that, like I wasn't going around being an aggressive kid. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't an aggressive kid at all. But in football, it's like that killer instinct kicked in. And I saw that in other friends and players too, where relatively unassuming people would get on the football field and you could just see it. You could just see it come out of them where certain people have that killer instinct. And that definitely adds to your ability to compete in a game like football, even at a young age, especially at a young age. But EB didn't have that. EB was very peaceful, very laid back. I don't think it made sense to him. I think he, he played football probably just to test himself or just to you know play a sport, try it out. But, uh, you know, despite his size, you know, it wasn't really that big of a deal to him. You know, it wasn't it wasn't really that important to to be a top player or anything. 
But it just goes to show you, too, because when we would play other teams, if they had a guy like him, like if another team had a guy who was like six foot two at age 14, we were terrified. We were like, oh, no, you would hear about it for the, the whole week. The coach would be like, listen, they got a guy who's six foot two. He's good. You know what he's going to do to you? The coaches would say things like that. One time we played a team that had a guy named Jimmy. He was known throughout the district as his name was Jimmy. And he was like six foot three, big heavy guy. And we just heard all week, you know, Jimmy's, if you play like that, you know, Jimmy, you play like that, you know what Jimmy's going to do to you? You know, it was like, that was the entire week. And Jimmy, it turned out, was fearsome. He did have a killer instinct. But EB was our big guy. But sometimes you would play another team and they would have a huge guy like that and you'd be terrified because you're basically playing against a man. You're a kid and you're playing against some kid who's your age, but he's huge. And that was terrifying. And that there was a physical advantage. But sometimes they wouldn't have that instinct. And you just play against them. And you'd be like, Oh, that guy that I was terrified about. He's just very, a very passive player. And so that was EB for us, nothing against him. Because honestly, he was one of the kindest, gentlest souls that I knew, you know, at that time, I wasn't a friend of his, really. Like we would always nod to each other. He was one of those guys that you would see in the hallway, and you would always nod to him. Um, we, we weren't we weren't like personal friends or anything. So I don't say, oh, he sucked at football. Oh, dude, he sucked. I'm not trying to talk smack about this guy 30 fucking, uh, not 30 years ago. Uh, how long ago was that? Over 20, I guess. A little over 20 years ago. I'm not trying to talk shit about some kid's football abilities 20 years ago. I'm just saying, though, that he it's like he was a huge guy. And when other teams played us, they probably saw him and they were like, oh, shit, they have a mountain on their team. But then you play against him and he just kind of lets you do whatever. He's just there. But he's part of the team. And that's, again, what I'm getting at. You know, there's something to be said for being on that team and going to practice every day. And you do form camaraderie with those people to where you see them in the hallways and they're not your good friends. They're not your personal friends. But even in subsequent years, when you're no longer playing, you would see them in the hallways and you would nod to them in most cases. And so being on a team like that does something. And, you know, I have no idea what it's like to be in the military, but I have to imagine that playing on on a football team is like a fractional version of that a very small fractional version and I noticed that especially with artists like like being an artist and uh, having been involved in music especially underground music and things like that it's very apparent to me that a lot of these guys didn't play sports and some of them resent athletes and they resent sports and think they're stupid. But I notice it in the way they respond to criticism in the way that they act out competition because competition is always there. I've talked about this extensively on this show for years and I don't know that I have anything new to add, but when has that ever stopped me? Um, Men have a need to compete. Women do too, of course. I'm not saying it's a, a, a manly trait exclusively, but I know it from a man's point of view. That's why I talk about it that way. I can observe the way women compete, and there are obvious ways that they do it, but I'm not going to comment on it here. You know, Even though I, it turns out these days I talk about what women do all the time. You ever notice how women do this? 
You ever notice how women do this? Even though I do that all the time. In this case, I'm going to let it go and just say, I know that women are extremely competitive, but I wouldn't be able to tell you the ins and outs of it. I can only tell you, you know, the most superficial outside take on that. But uh, I can tell you how men compete. And no matter what it is, there is a competitive urge in most men. Whether they're playing football, whether they're playing sports, there's a competitive urge in all men. And it comes out in creativity as well, especially if it's kind of a, I don't really like the word community. The word community is gone. In case you hadn't noticed, the word community is long gone. It's been abstracted to the point of meaninglessness. Recently, I don't know when this started, but in the last few years, we started to hear the CIA and the FBI and the NSA referred to as the intelligence community. The intelligence community has come out. I'm sure they are a community. I'm sure they're a sick, incestuous bunch. But a community? Are you kidding me? It's like during this time that we have all of these other communities that we talk about. The LGBT community. The black community. The intelligence community. You know, the fact that we have these very abstracted ideas of what a community is now. When to me, a community is something far more concrete. You think about what a community is historically, traditionally, and we use community more often to refer to these abstracted groups of people. And what's more abstract than a bunch of three-letter agencies calling themselves a community? I wonder when that got started. I'd be curious when that developed, when we started to hear government intelligence agencies who are the most nefarious people in the world calling themselves communities. I wonder if it started during Trumpsfeld. Because, you know, it's, it's no, uh, it's hardly news that Trumpsfeld was at odds with the FBI and the CIA. He was always talking shit about them and they were always out to get him. It's clear that there was no love lost between Trumpsfeld and the intelligence community. But that's when I first started to notice that phrase. I'm sure it probably was used earlier, but it's it crossed my radar during the Trumpsfeld era. And I can't help but feel that that was deliberate. Given the way community is used these days, I can't help but feel they started to refer to them as the intelligence community when they were at odds with Trumpsfeld. It's like this way of humanizing them. When in reality, I mean, I'm not going to say they're inhuman, but if you're going to accuse any entity of being inhuman and anti-communal, I think the intelligence agencies are the ones to direct that sentiment to, toward, to, toward, to, toward, to, toward. <laughs> um. <laughs> Just nonsense here. Um, yeah, no, I think if you're if you're going to dehumanize any entity comprised of humans, you might as well make it the CIA. You might as well make it the NSA. So the idea of calling them a community just makes me sick. Makes me sick. Makes me sick. Um. Anyway, getting back to. Uh, where were we at with that? Um, 
sense of community. I don't remember where that spiral began. Sometimes it comes back to me, so I'll give myself a second. I was talking about creativity and competition, which is, you know, it's hard for me to refer to any kind of my involvement in any kind of artistic or creative circles. It's hard for me to call that a community. I guess you could say a network, you know, both in in a very organic and inorganic sense. Um, I've, I've been a part of certain networks, I guess you could say, and there's a lot of competition. And artists are insanely competitive. And it's funny because they're they're presented. It's like artists have been given the best PR campaign in the world. Because people act like artists are just, oh, you know, it's like they didn't fit in. They didn't like to play team sports. All that macho jock nonsense. And they were, the jocks hated them. Because they were nerdy gay artists and they just, you know, they had this vision for things and it just didn't fit in with the mainstream. And it's like more often than not, the artists I've known have done as much to sabotage themselves as anybody else ever did. And it's not like they didn't participate in football and sports because they're non-competitive. They're insanely competitive. They're constantly observing each other. Like speaking about musicians, they're constantly creepily watching what each other is doing. And even their friends, like their friends will share what they did with them. And deep in their mind, they're thinking, not, and not that deep, they're thinking, oh, how does this compare to what I'm doing or what I did? How can I do better than this? Oh, I hope this isn't better than what I did. Not everybody thinks that way. You know, some people are naturally more mature than that. And I don't even think it's a matter of maturity. I think it's something we naturally do. You know, we evaluate ourselves by comparing ourselves to others. It, that's our mirror. Other people are our mirror. Mirror. And uh, so as a result, though, it's like artists are constantly comparing each other. And, you know, and I'm not an exception, you know, but I was, I've always been aware of it, too, is the thing. Like, I certainly have done that, but I have been aware of it, I will say. And I hate it about myself, but not really, because I know it's just a natural function of being a person and doing anything. And I think what's helped me out in that regard is that sports and team sports specifically taught me about the nature of competition. And what's great about football is even though it's this insanely macho and competitive atmosphere, you recognize when someone's really good and you don't think to yourself, oh, I should be the quarterback. Some people do, like somebody who really, really wants to be the quarterback and maybe they're almost as good as the starting quarterback but not quite good enough to beat him out. They might have some of that resentment where they're like, it should be me. But for the most part, like as a lineman, for example, I was an offensive lineman on, you know, I played on the offensive line And that's the most boring position and the least glorious position on the field. You never get the ball. You never get any credit. People only acknowledge you to criticize you when you're not blocking for the guy who's running the ball, when you do a bad job blocking. So it's like, it's really the least glorious position on a football field. Um, But at no point when I was playing football did I ever think I should be the running back. I should be the quarterback. 
I should be the wide receiver. I never thought that because it's like, no, I'm a chubby guy. You know, I'm a chubby guy who's meant to aggressively block people. I'm meant to use my killer instinct, which I have, to move the mass of my body and use my arms to aggressively move another human being around so that the guy on my team can run where he needs to. It's like being a sumo wrestler. And uh, I never once like resented the quarterback or the running back for being the skinny, fast kid who could run the ball or throw the ball. I never resented that because I understood that in... Because football is a competition on many different levels. Like at practice, especially early on, you're competing against your teammates to get the starting position, to get a given position, you know, whatever it is. And then you compete against each other all year at practice in skirmishes, in drills. You tackle your own teammates. You block your own teammates. So you're continually competing against your teammates. You're trying to outdo them. You're trying to, you know, be the best player at practice. And then you go to games where you all work together to play the other team and outdo them. So it's several different layers of competition. And it's I think it's a good exercise to have to compete against your teammates, your comrades, and then have to join together that weekend and compete against another team. That's an amazing process. The idea of competing against these guys who are on your side all week and then going and competing competing together against a completely different group of strangers. It's a pretty amazing thing. And I think that teaches you something about competition. And football definitely teaches you, sports definitely teach you that when a player is the best at his position, unless you're really bitter, you're going to be like, he's there because he's the best at it. And yeah, every once in a while, a team would have like the coach's son But you know what? My coaches didn't do that. I had a lot of coaches' sons on my teams, and they didn't play favorites. They didn't usually put their son in an important position just because he was their son. In fact, in just about every case that I can remember, the coach's son had the hardest road of all. The coach was hardest on his son. Yeah, he played him. He put him in the game and everything. He didn't bench him. But he made his son work for his position, and usually the coach's son was fairly competent because his dad was a freaking football coach, and he understood football, and he understood what it means to be a football player. I mean, I had a, a, a teammate once whose dad was our coach. Uh, his name was Larry. Um, coach Larry. I really liked Larry. He was a black man. Yeah, look, looking back, I love that guy, Larry. Didn't really know him very well. Um, he wasn't big dog. You know, I had, I had two black men as coaches over the years. Several. I had several over the years. But uh, he wasn't big dog, who I've talked about extensively on here. But his name was Larry, Coach Larry. And he had an assistant coach named Coach DJ. Two kind of young black men. They probably weren't much older than early 30s. And Larry had a son who was on our team. This is just me recounting my glory days of youth football. That's all I got. No, but Larry had a son who was on the team. And I think he did bad at school or he got in trouble at school one day. And one day, Coach Larry came to practice and he just said, 
Justin's not on the team anymore. We're all like, what? That's your son. It's as if he came to practice and he said, I just killed Justin. <laughs> I just killed, just so you guys know, Justin don't walk the earth no more. Justin's not on this planet no more. That, it was as if he told us that because it was like all of a sudden we were well into the season and one day the coach comes to practice and he just says, oh, by the way, my son isn't on the team anymore. He met, And I'm sure it killed him. You know, I'm sure it killed that man to do that. But he decided his son, I think, got bad grades or he did something wrong. Maybe he got in trouble in school, got suspended. I don't know what it was, but he wouldn't really talk about it. Probably because it killed him inside to have to kick his own son off the team. But that's exactly, that's maybe the best example of what I'm talking about of coaches not favoring their own sons. And, uh, but uh, anyway, so you didn't really have that kind of nepotism. So in general, you know, you respected when a player earned his position and you expected him to play well. But playing team sports, it's like you understood that a good player is on the team and playing the position he's playing because he's freaking good. And so that teaches you something. But then moving back over to creativity and art, and I know I'm exceptionally hard on artists, and I think they deserve it. I think they deserve more pushback than they get in our society. And a lot of people would say the opposite. They'd be like, people don't encourage artists enough. But I'm talking about within creative circles. Because there's part of my family who, who thinks creativity is a waste of time. Not necessarily mine. But there's part of my family, some older generations, who I know for a fact, they're very conservative-minded. And I agree with them on many different things. But one area where I disagree with them is they tend to see creativity as a waste of time. And they were discouraged from pursuing it. Therefore, they just kind of don't think it's that important. Um, that's their right to believe that. I think we need people to, to believe that, to be honest. I think that actually pushes people to be better at art. It gives them better ideas when there's pushback. Um, but anyway, uh, you know, I, 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 I'm not afraid to be very hard on creative people because I think they get way too much of a free pass in our society in many ways. I think they're given too much of, a, of an unearned congratulations just for doing it. And it's easier than ever to do it. It's easier than ever to just do it. So anyway, but one thing I've noticed is that there's a lot of resentment. If you know artists, if you're privy to the way they think, or even if you don't know them that well, you can see it online. If you've ever had access to any kind of online community that's comprised largely of creative people, the resentment, the competition, it's just boiling there. And some people are good at hiding it, but other people, it just comes out. And not in the form of criticism, because I'm a critical person. You know, I think it's good to be critical, but you can see where there's a pettiness that comes out of people. And I've seen this in many different ways. I've known this because I've known a lot of different types of creative people. I've known, I had friends who were in indie rock bands. I had friends who were in, you know, I, obviously I've, I've had some involvement in metal, experimental music, some different things of my own, visual art. So I've known people who have played a variety of music, even just normal people who just play like, I don't know, singer-songwriter crap. 
people who just are into Dave Matthews band, Jack Johnson, whoever he is, who are just into that and like buy an acoustic guitar and play, you know, outside of, I don't know. I've just, I've known a lot of different types of people who I've known people who make hip hop. 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 What'd you say? I've known people who make hip hop. Did you say you've known people who make hip hop? I love people to make it bop, bebop. Bebop? You saying bebop? I love people to make it oh, stupid. <laughs> Excuse me. Excuse me. Uh, that one got to me. Um, I've known people who make bebop. <laughs> Uh, nothing like a, just a, a, a sentence mutating before your very ears. Somebody's saying, I've known people who make hip-hop, and that just somebody thinking that they're saying, I've known people who make bebop. <laughs> All right, I'll, I'll, I'll reel it in here. Um, but anyway, I've known, basically, point being, I could go on for days. Um and I've known people who have been involved in a variety of forms of creativity and, you know, whether it's music, whether it's visual art, with different kinds of performance. I've known some people and everybody's extremely competitive. And for some people, the people who are really good, it seems to motivate them. And a lot of that seems to be competition with themselves where they want to prove something to themselves. They want to outdo themselves. And other people are a part of that, but it's largely internally driven. They want to set themselves apart for their own sake. I think those are the people who tend to do best, is that their biggest critic is themselves. But there's certain people who, kind of the opposite of what I was saying in my football experience where there's kind of an understanding that the guy who's our starting quarterback is the starting quarterback because he's the best at the job. Even though he's a kid and he probably actually sucks, he's the best kid on our team. He's the kid who can throw the best on our team. So that's why he's there. And that plays out up and down. It plays out in the NFL, especially in the NFL. You're not going to see somebody in a starting position unless they're the best at that job in almost every case. But in creativity, you tend to see a much different take on that, where if you catch an artist in his most candid moments, he's often thinking something like, if he doesn't have a deep inferiority complex where he's like, well, I just suck, which is usually manufactured, often manufactured, not usually necessarily, but often but unless there's some sort of inferiority complex where they're constantly like, or false humility where it's like, oh, I just suck. I just suck. Everybody else is better than me and I suck. I, I don't people to make me up. I don't people to make me up. <laughs> uh, unless it's someone who has like some deep inferiority complex or humility or, you know, whether it's authentic humility or manufactured, whatever. You know, there's a lot of people though who they see what other people are doing and they think that should be me. I should be getting that attention. I should be getting that. That person should be putting my record out, not that person's. I deserve more attention. What I'm doing is blah, blah, blah. What I'm doing is bebop. What I'm doing is bebop. 
run through me, but stupid. I'm, I'm, I'm done with that one. Um, but you see that where it's it's not like I've noticed with creative people that they have a more difficult time looking at somebody who's doing something really well, whether that person's getting any kind of real praise for it or not. But I noticed that they have a harder time looking at somebody who's very good at something and thinking just in a pure way like that person deserves all of the acknowledgement that they could potentially get because they're really good. Instead, they kind of compare it to themselves and it's just something I've noticed, and I don't know that I'd be able to properly explain it here, but it seems to be a very unhealthy way of competing. And it does come from a need to compete because it's what we do. We compete. We have a competitive urge. And it doesn't just come out in creativity. And that's a point I really want to make here, which is I've learned this through mafia research. I've become friends with several authors and mafia historians, some of which I can, I was just on a conversation earlier tonight. I got a text message while I was eating dinner from my buddy Angelo, who's a collaborator, and I mean, he's just a, a phenomenal guy all around. And I got a, a message from him, and it just said, like, hey, I'm on a phone call with, you know, Mark and Rick. I'm on a phone call with Bebop. No, stupid. God, I gotta stop. Um, Bebop's a Ninja Turtle character. I'm on a phone call with Bebop. <laughs> uh, I'm on a phone call with hip hop. Uh, <laughs> really silly here. It's getting late. Um, but uh, you know, he was just like, "I'm on a phone. I'm on a four. I'm on a three way phone call with these guys. Do you want to join?" And I was like, "Yeah." And so we just talked. You know, we just we're all friends and we're all researchers and we all just like went off. All four of us. It was I've never had that many people on a phone call before. And we just went off about all kinds of stuff, all kinds of nerdy stuff related to mafia history, Chicago stuff. They, these guys, two of these guys are experts on the Chicago mafia family that I don't know much about. And so we were discussing them. And then one of them said something that somebody else disagreed with. And they kind of went back and forth. And it wasn't an argument, but they had a, you know, a debate about it, about interpreting some information. And then another guy was like, well, I don't mean to be a contrarian here and like, I don't mean to keep being a contrarian and I cut him off and I was just like, please do like do it. Like, like I want, like we want you to be a contrarian. Like we want you to give pushback cause we're just, we're all friends here. You know, we're actually not competing with each other. We're, we're just, we're having a fun discussion about a subject that very few people care about. And, uh, you know, so it was just funny though, cause it's like a little bit of debate crept in, but what I was going to get at with that is what's interesting, and I never would have expected this, but I should have, is that the competitive spirit is very strong among this tiny niche world of mafia researchers where there are authors who hate each other. There's a guy in England named Dave Critchley. I've had a little bit of communication with him over many years. I don't know him well. He wrote a really good book, an academic book about the history of organized crime, but I have a couple friends who can't stand him because he's he they were in competition with him. They were both researching the same time period in the same place and he stole some information from them. And he published it before them. And they wouldn't lie about that. These aren't petty people. He he like he took something from them that they had discovered and used it in his own work without crediting them, which happens a lot. And so there was this competition between them. And I completely understand why they have an issue with this guy. And there's, a, there's other rivalries too. There's rivalries in, in this subject between people who have never had published books. There's people who just 
discuss this stuff on the internet who hate each other because they have some sort of competitive urge and they're all men and and they're all smart and they all know a lot so these i'm not talking about fools here you know i'm talking about people who i have respect for and but the reality is is that they are all researching this subject and interpreting this subject and it's a very small circle of people many of whom almost all of whom have been in contact with each other for you know for me it's been about 15 16 years that i've probably 16 17 years now i mean most of my adult life that i've been in contact with these guys you know you know in some way or form and uh, so for me, like I, I didn't, but I didn't like come upon all this until later. I didn't realize there were rivalries and competitions within the mafia research niche among mafia historians. But why wouldn't there be? I mean, there's a scientist who I listen to. I listen to his podcast, believe it or not. He's a reasonable scientist. So I listen to him sometimes. And it's amazing hearing his stories because he talks about his own competition with other scientists and he acknowledges it. He acknowledges that in his area of research, which is biology, that there's a lot of competition and he has a rivalry with this other person who, once again, he feels like they took something from him. That's a common feeling. Artists are filled with that. Artists, oh man, artists are the worst. They took my idea. Their band kind of sounds like mine. I know they took my idea. I know they took my idea. You know, you, you hear that a lot from artists. And sometimes they do because artists are, uh, there's a lot of thieves because there's weird, there's weird kind of like self-fulfilling, I don't, I don't know what to call them, but there's those sayings. It's like someone will quote, I don't know who, there's, there's some famous person where it's like every artist just knows how to steal. And it's like, yeah, if you tell yourself that, if you tell yourself that, oh, it, being an artist just means knowing how to steal in the right way. I know that's not the exact quote, but that's the sort of stuff. And maybe there's a, there's some level of truth to that because, you know, we're all sponges and we all take influences. I don't like going into it with that mindset. It's one thing to take influence. But if you go into creativity thinking, well, every artist steals, every artist steals, you know, you're going to steal. And you know what? I know a lot of thieves, and I would say many of them are quote-unquote creative people. I've had things taken from me, and that's why I know that feeling so well. Semi-recently, I found out somebody took an idea from me. And I'm a small guy, you know? I'm, I'm, I'm a nobody. So you can only imagine what well-known people go through. Um, but I found out somebody took an idea from me, and they tweaked it very, very slightly. It wasn't just an influence. They actually took an idea from me. I don't know if they even know they did it, because sometimes this stuff enters the subconscious, and you forget where you initially heard it. You forget where you initially got your idea. But, I, you know, for me personally, like, I try to catalog that shit in my mind. Like, if I see something I like or hear something I like, I try to make darn sure that it's not going to enter my subconscious in some deceptive way where it comes out later and I claim that I came up with it or something. I try, I'm very careful about that because my pride honestly depends on it. If I feel like I took something from someone, it just defeats everything that I want to do with myself. Um, other people don't necessarily feel that way. 
It's like an ends justifies the means kind of thing. So I know what it is to feel that way in my own small way. Not in any big substantial way, but in my own small way, I know what it is to feel like somebody took something from you. And you have to get over it, you know, and I don't know what it's, again, I don't know what it's like if somebody just flat out steals from you, because I don't, I don't think I've experienced that, but it happens in subtle ways. And there's nothing worse than somebody complaining about somebody taking from them. You know, there's nothing worse, like talking about this scientist who feels that his work was stolen from him. I completely understand him and believe him, actually. I completely believe that some go-getter colleague of his did take this research from him. But hearing him complain about it sucks, too. It's, it's one of those things where it's like nobody wants to hear that story, even if it's true. And even if it deserves to be told, nobody wants to hear that petty story about how something was taken from you. Even just a second ago, me mentioning that I'm aware of somebody taking something from me it makes me sick to admit that, to, to say that out loud. But it goes back to you know, one of the central themes that I've always talked about, which is just giving credit where it's due. You can take things from people, and if you admit it, well, you've at least, you know, you've, you've justified it in many ways. Like, because paying tribute is totally cool. Like, I was listening to an interview with a guy who uh, released records by me many years ago. He released several noise records by me. A guy who, he's somebody that I would describe as a truly great man who treated me extremely well, who treats everyone extremely well, who's just an easy, great guy to get along with. And, you know, he does his own music. And he was talking about his own music, and he was saying how he was directly influenced by so-and-so and how he was basically, basically took that and was doing his own version of it. And you know what? He just did alchemy right there. Like what he did by saying, oh, yeah, I saw this guy do that. And I said, I'm going to take that idea and just kind of do my own tweak on it. He just completely made it okay in my view. Because what he ended up doing is cool in its own right. It's good in its own right. And a lot of people have done that. A lot of people are able to do that kind of alchemy. And what completes the alchemical process, and I know he would fucking laugh and probably stab me in the ribs for saying, for putting it this way, but like what completes that alchemical process is saying, oh yeah, I got that idea from this person. Because you know what? That person is going to hear that and say, that's a compliment. That's when stealing from someone becomes a compliment. Not that this guy stole, but that, that was the point I was trying to make. That's when influence, even up to the point of just outright taking from somebody, that's when it becomes a compliment is when you give credit. And that's why I, I think I've, I talked about this very early on, on from the very start of Every Night's a School Night, where when I play a song by a friend of mine, or, or, or sorry, when I play a song that was recommended to me by a friend of mine, I always try to acknowledge that because I know that that matters to them. Not that it matters to every single person who might do that, but I know my friends who are passionate about music and recommend music to, to certain people, including me, and they like for it to be acknowledged. It might be petty, but still, it's something that they discovered and shared with you and I think the least you can do is say, I heard about this from my friend so-and-so. 
You know, I, I think there's something to be said for just acknowledging people. And the reason why we don't acknowledge people, the reason why when we take influence or when we in turn share something that a friend recommended to us, you know, the reason why sometimes we don't acknowledge it is because there is a part of people that wants people to think that I found it. Oh, I found, I discovered that. And I noticed that early on with people, and I've, I've seen it with adults as well as teenagers, growing, being a teenager as well as into adulthood, where especially being very into music, and people might think this sounds ridiculous, but this is a life that people live, you know, and it's a, and it's a good life. Um, where like somebody like learns about music or a movie or just something, they learn about something from somebody they know, and then kind of make it their own, where it's like, oh, I'm into this, and I'm going to broadcast that to everybody. And then that friend who introduced that person feels a little bit resentful, where it's like, well, I, I kind of gave that to you. And a truly, you know, kind of magnanimous, mature person, a mature soul might just be like, yeah, I gave that to you, and it's yours to go with. A truly mature soul might do that. But few of us are truly mature souls, at least, you know, during the first phase of our lives, you know, so giving people just a basic level of acknowledgement when you get something from them goes a really long way. I don't know why I got onto that, but I guess it had to do with this idea of kind of theft and taking from people and the pettiness of artists, the pettiness of creative people. Where I've just, and maybe, you know, and this isn't just, I'm not talking about my friends here, because I actually think my friends have a, a pretty good perspective on this stuff. I've just known a lot of people, a lot of people involved in different things. And it's amazing to me that I've come across it in strange mafia history researchers. I've come across it in when I just listened to a podcast from a scientist talking about some biological research he did that was taken from him. And that he was in competition with this other person. The fact that I've experienced that myself in music and art. The fact that so many people feel this way all the time. They're like looking to get credit for what they do. But also looking at other people who are getting credit. And thinking like, oh, they don't deserve that. This is a competition. There's some sort of resource that that person is taking away from me. Because that's the other side of it, too. As much as people do take things from other people and sometimes don't acknowledge it, people's egos also create this narrative in their head that people are constantly stealing from them. And, it's, and when it's not even true. So that's the other side of it, is that as a creative person, you can easily become your own little conspiracy theorist who looks around and thinks... Everybody's just stealing from me. I've got all the good ideas. I've got all the creative resources. And everybody's just stealing from me. Everybody's just stealing from me. Everybody's just stealing from me. Everybody's stealing my bebop. Everybody's stealing my bebop. Everybody's stealing my bebop. <laughs> I said it would be I said I would be done, but I just can't stop. Um <laughs> Everybody's stealing my bebop. <laughs> No, but anyway, you know, there, there are people and I've known them and I've even, I think I've even verged into that at times and really bad moments in my life where like I look around and it's general, it's, it's almost always untrue. I mean, who am I? I'm a little, just a little guy out there in the world. But even then, like I've, I've definitely looked around before and been like, 
if not like, oh, somebody took something from me, I might think like somebody might take something from me. Somebody might take my jewels. Oh my God, I, I can't share anything with anybody because somebody might take my jewels. Somebody might take my jewels. You know, I, I've sometimes gotten into that mindset before. But yet what you have to remember is like, if somebody can take something from you, if somebody can outdo you in some way, it doesn't matter what the subject is. It doesn't matter what the interest is. If somebody can outdo you in some way, well, push yourself a little harder. Make something that people can't take. Push yourself that much harder to do something that nobody else can do. Did you ever think about that one? You ever think about that one? You ever, you ever think about that? You ever think about that bebop? You ever think about that, you ever think about that bebop? Um, you ever think about that bebop? Um, no, that's, that's the other side of it where it's like if you're a person, and this might sound completely insane to some people, but I know people who could potentially hear this who will say he's absolutely right. I guarantee you that there are certain people who, who would hear what I'm saying right here and be like, you are on the money. And uh, I think part of it is that look at the people I'm talking about. I'm talking about artists and creators. I'm talking about researchers. I'm talking about scientists. The list could go on. These are people who haven't necessarily experienced full-on competition. These are people who haven't necessarily, I mean, I'm not, I'm, I'm jumping to conclusions here, but they're, they're kind of nerdy, not traditionally masculine pursuits. And if you haven't experienced football or team sports or just direct physical competition, I don't think you really know how to deal with it as well. I don't think like when you've experienced a sport where you're literally up against somebody trying to outdo them physically and strategically, both on your own team in order to get a starting position and prove yourself to the coach just in general, prove your worth to the team. And when then you're doing that that weekend against a team of strangers, it teaches you something about you know, I don't know, it just teaches you something about the spirit of competition, especially among men. And I'm not saying that youth football, you know, I quit playing football when I got into high school. I didn't continue to, I didn't, I never played an entire season of, uh, I, I never played an, a season at all of true high school football. I went to all the training my first year of high school. I went to all the summer trainings and right before the season started, I would never quit during the season. First of all, I would have never quit if I'd started playing the actual season when we're playing games, I would have never quit during the season. But right before school started, I'd spent the entire summer going to two-a-days, doing all of that stereotypical high school football stuff, and I just decided to quit. Because the coach gave us the speech before all that started. He gave us a speech, the high school football coach, and he said, Listen, this is your list of priorities. One, family, two, school, three, church if you go, and four, football. And I heard him say that, and I remember at the time getting this kind of sinking feeling. And I just thought, you know what? Like, I'm into so many other things. I'm just starting to get deeply passionate about music. I'm, I'm, I'm really starting to feel like I want to be that much deeper, I, I want to be that much more deeply involved 
in as a fan and potentially maybe down the road recording i just i know that you know that's calling to you know calling to me in some way i'm also starting to get you know i'm trying to like figure out what i want to do with visual art at that point i really hadn't figured out exactly what i was trying to do with visual art not to get pretentious about this but that was going on and and i was just i had so many interests going on and i remember hearing the coach say that your priorities should be family school church if you go and that's how he put it he said like church if you go and then football and you know what there's nothing wrong with that list of priorities that is the exact list of priorities you should have if you're a high school football player because high school football is serious you know it's when you start to try to carve out your niche as a potential college player you know it's it could potentially impact the entire direction your life takes. And for most people, it won't. But high school football is serious. And the coach was completely right. I like It wasn't that I sat there and rolled my eyes and I was like, oh, listen to this freaking idiot. He thinks that, oh, this coach, he thinks that family, school, church, and football are more important than everything else. It wasn't like I thought that. It was like, he's right. He's right that if I want to play high school football, those have to be my priorities. But I can't really reconcile that with the fact that I'm into so many other dang things, you know? And so uh, I went to all the camp. Uh, you know, I, I, didn't go to the, uh, I didn't go to the overnight camp. That was sort of a deal breaker for me. Because right before the start of the season, you were supposed to go to this overnight training camp for, I think, a week or something where you sleep in dormitories, you sleep in bunks, and you eat with the team, and you train all day. And I was like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to go stay at some camp hours away from my town. There's so many other things I want to be doing. And so that was kind of a deal breaker for me. And I knew that my priorities simply didn't line up. It wasn't me trying to rebel. And I, th- I didn't think that coach was stupid for saying that those should be my priorities. It was just that I knew those couldn't be my priorities. But I'm so glad that I played football up to that point because I do feel like it taught me something essential. And I noticed that people who had that experience kind of understand, like, I feel like they take criticism a little easier sometimes. Maybe I'm really going out on a limb here, but I feel like people who have been yelled at by a coach and told to do better, it's football's very critical. Everybody's criticizing each other, but in a constructive way. You're, at least as long as the coach isn't a monster, it's constructive. Players are the same way to each other, as long as they aren't monsters, as long as, like, the culture of the team is good. You know, it's everybody's pushing each other to go farther. And what I've noticed about people who don't necessarily come from that background, people who haven't experienced direct conference, uh, direct competition that way, I find that they're far more sensitive to criticism. I find that they don't take things as well. I find that they don't really understand the spirit of competition quite as well. And I'm not saying, you know, I am some accomplished competitor in any way. I'm just saying that I'm aware of a difference in people who have had that experience. And maybe more importantly, I'm aware of how that influenced me. Not that it makes me a better person. Not that it, you know, I might be an asshole. I might be petty. I might not be, you know, maybe football turned me into a, a bigger asshole. Or maybe I was just an asshole to begin with. Probably that a little bit. But uh, I just noticed that I think it just 
it prepares you to kind of compete to respect and appreciate when somebody is the right man for the job and is a good competitor at anything. And I think it kind of, it, it, it trains you to deal with, I don't know, it, just, it's, it toughens you up is what they used to say. That's what people used to say about youth sports is like, it toughens you up. And I think that's true. I think it toughens you up. And I experienced all of that while getting a participation trophy at the end of the year. So somebody who says like youth sports, oh, what ruined youth sport? What, what ruined the millennials is they all got participation trophies. Now you know what a participation trophy is? It's when a bunch of artists like fake compliment each other. It's when people are fake nice to each other. You ever hear that phrase? People like to use it. It's a silly word. It's a silly term. But fake nice. Oh, she's fake nice. Uh, Ellen Degenerate, Ellen Degenerate, did you hear she's fake nice? It's a silly phrase people use, fake nice, but it's a real thing to be fake nice. Some people are fake nice, and I resent that. I resent fake niceness, when, especially when that person's an asshole behind the scenes. And I've experienced that a lot with people. Like in football, people were assholes up front, and I always appreciated that. It's for the same reason that I've gone on long rants on here about how when a musician or a famous person turns out to be an asshole, when they're publicly an asshole, or even they're mean to their fans or something, I, it doesn't bother me. Because I'm like, at least they're upfront about it. It's far worse for that person to be fake nice. It's almost like a congratulation unearned again, where it's like they're giving you a pat on your head when you don't deserve it. And not only that, they don't even mean it. That's a participation trophy is when someone pats you on the head for doing nothing, but secretly they're undermining you. Hey, baddie, about to close this off here. Baddie's looking at me, um, sees me just, I mean, what does he think? What does baddie think? He just sees me sitting at the kitchen counter, this high stool. I'm sitting on this very high stool just ranting about youth sports and how much better youth sports are than art. <laughs> uh, what does he think? Um, but anyway, that's what a participation trophy is to me. A true participation trophy in the worst sense of the word. It's when someone's being fake nice. It's when someone wants acknowledgement for something they didn't do. The actual participation trophies that I got growing up, they were earned. I also earned some other trophies to talk myself, to talk my child self up a little bit here. You know, I, I got a couple best lineman awards or something, you know, because I, I, it was important to me to compete. I don't know why it was in me. I think it's in men. I think it's in people. But in men, it comes out in a certain way. So, But even the kids who weren't that competitive, because you'd have kids on your team, like the big guy, EB, and he didn't really care about competing. He just wanted to be part of the team. But he came out and he ran. He sweat. You know, he sweated. He tackled people. He did some cool things now that I think about it. Just, I'll finish this up with a little story about him, actually, where we were playing a game. 
And we had this coach who was a mean motherfucker, I'll say, a mean MFer. A mean MFer. And his name was Bama. I don't know if that was short for Alabama. He had he had been the lineman coach at my school long before I ever went there. And he was about 500 pounds, no exaggeration, an absolute blob of a man. He could only wear probably like triple XL sweatpants. And every single day he wore a faded black shirt that went down to his knees, but it just like encased him. And it just like, it kind of like just in, it encased him and it hung down to his knees, but it was like, because his gut and sides and everything, like I'm talking morbid obesity, but his head was surprisingly small. Like he had a, he had a double chin. He had like the head of like a 250 pound man, but he was 500 pounds. Like there was a story that they tried to weigh him on the scale in the gym at the school in the locker room and it wouldn't weigh him. He was so big. And he, he was a guy, I think he was an alcoholic. He drove a an old white Thunderbird that was beat up and faded. And I'm not even kidding you. It was permanently tilted. He was so heavy in this little, in the Thunderbird. It was very low to the ground. And what I remember was it was filled with garbage. And I think he was missing teeth. He was just, I don't even know where he came from. I don't know how they found him. I think he must have been... I got, I I think, I don't remember the exact story, but I believe that he had been a very good football player when he was a young man and had been a coach for a very long time. He must have had a tragic life. I mean, he obviously did. I don't think he was married. He, I think he lived for football and he drove a white Thunderbird and we would watch him leave and come to practice. And, you know, like I said, it was permanently tilted to one side because of his weight, like his, his weight permanently changed the the structure of the car and when he would get in it it would it would weigh down even more and he was just a tough tough man mean but you know what once you earned his respect it meant something it was like that simon cowell american idol effect where you know everybody's like oh simon's mean oh simon he's mean oh dude simon's fucking mean dude Dude, dude, you know, dude, Simon's fucking mean. You know, the American Idol, like the crowd boos when he gives a criticism. Like everybody else on the panel on American Idol's fake nice. Like, oh, you know, you you look so cute. Oh, you, you know, your voice, it's it's good, but you know, you know. And Simon's like, oh, I hated it. I hate it. I hated it. I hate it. And everybody the crowd's like, boo. I hated the beat I hate the bebop. That's stupid. Um, I don't know what I was going for there. But uh, I was trying to work in one last round of that. But anyway, Simon Cowell, you know, everybody boos him. But then when Simon's like, every every once in a while on American Idol, there was that person who would do something and it would get to Simon and there was this kind of dramatic tension. And Simon would be like, that was the best thing I've ever seen. That was amazing i don't know how i don't know what he would say he was like you have an absolutely incredible voice i I vote yes and the crowd would just pop when simon would give just a genuine real compliment because he was the asshole it built this dramatic narrative into american idol where it was like when simon approves 
everybody's it's a party because they know it's real and yeah it's a fake show and all that but i learned a lot from like the three times i've seen american idol through from the cultural osmosis of just knowing how that show works bama was like simon cowell where uh he was you hated him like i remember looking at him during summer practice and like you resented the fact that he's 500 pounds and he's making you do these grueling activities on a summer day and it's killing you. And you're looking at this guy and you're just like, you're 500 pounds. You, you couldn't do this on a, you know, your best day. And he was missing teeth and his face was all like, man, it was weird. Like not like scarred up or anything, but there was something really messed up about his face. Like maybe he'd been in fights and he was pretty old too. But then you know what? When you earned Bama's respect, it was like Simon Cowell complimenting you. I became like Bama's guy. It was crazy. Like I became Bama's favorite guy because I was one of his linemen. So he was the lineman coach and I was one of the offensive linemen. And so I became Bama's guy. And it was, it wasn't like he, we didn't have a close personal relationship, but at practice and during games, like I was the guy, you know, who he like I was like his example or something. And it, it, it's just incredible. Like when you earn somebody like that, when you earn a guy like that's respect, because it's like he seems so contemptible. He seems so mean. But it's like Simon Cowell, where he's not fake nice. And the reason why earning his respect means something is because he doesn't bullshit you. But anyway, why th- what got me thinking about Bama, who he, there's no way he's alive. He cannot be alive. Um, and if that's the case, honestly, rest rest in peace, Bama, man. But anyway, uh, Bama, you know, I can only imagine the multitude of comorbid health issues he had. And I believe he was, he must, I, his, his weight, I think, was the product of severe alcoholism. He seemed like it. And uh, one reason I think that is because there was this pair of twins on my team one year, the year before, uh, whatever. Um, but there was this pair of twins on my team and, uh, they were stoners. They were good football players, but they were kind of fuck ups and stoners. They would come to school stoned at a pretty young age. They would steal their mom's alcohol, things like that. And one morning word got around that one of the twins had come to school drunk that morning. Like I think the bus, the school bus driver, had passed word along that like the rumor was is that he came to school drunk. It was pretty obvious. He smelled like booze and we were young. I mean, these kids were like 15 at the oldest, maybe 14, 15. So pretty young to be, you know, kids do that, but I mean, to be getting drunk in the morning before school sounds fun, but weird. I can say that I was never once drunk. I was, I've been stoned in high school, you know, a number of times, but I never once got drunk at school or before school just seems like too much of a risk. Um, but anyway, Bama got word that this kid had come to school drunk and he, he pulled him over to the side and I was within earshot and he was like, so what's this I hear about you coming to school drunk this morning? Very quiet. Not, it was weird. It was, it was a completely different side of Bama than I had ever seen. He was very quiet, very, cause he would yell, he'd go, there was a guy, my friend Andre Marr was on our team. He'd go, Marr, Marr, Marr. That always cracked me up the way he'd say, Marr. Scream it. 
Um, but anyway, he uh, he called this kid over, this one of the twins, and he was very quiet, very serious, but kind of conscientious. And he and he said to the kid, he was just like, "What's this I hear about?" you coming to school drunk this morning and the kid just kind of like smiled and he was like, or not even smile. He just kind of like stupidly just denied it. And obviously bullshitting the coach, coach Bama and Bama goes, listen, alcohol will destroy a man. Trust me. And it, it was, it was so, you know, you could tell he was talking about himself. Um, it was quite crazy looking back because I just I happened to just I, I was nearby because I was often near Bama because I was one of his guys. And uh, it was just it was really interesting to see him do that, to see him pull this kid off to the side and just say, listen, you know, alcohol will destroy a man. Listen to me, trust me. And it, it was just, it, it, you know, I don't think the kid took it to heart because he, he was a big partier later on, but still. I remembered it, and uh, it told me something about Bama. But the reason I started thinking about Bama, I hadn't, I hadn't even thought to bring him up, is that the big guy Eb, the the big passive mu- white white man Muslim, white Muslim, the white Muslim, uh, he he actually did get a little bit of a killer instinct later on, as the season played out. He actually did develop a little more of that killer instinct. I shouldn't have said he sucked earlier because I remember he actually kind of got into things and we were playing a game and he actually did this incredible tackle and he took the guy out of bounds and they just like rolled through the grass right into Bama's legs, which is not a good thing no matter who you are. You know, it's not a good thing no matter who you are. Like I've had that happen to me on a football field And I mean, at best, your shins get fucked up. It really hurts. I mean, to have two completely, you know, two players in full uniform with their helmets. I mean, I once had a a player's helmet. A guy got tackled in front of me and his helmet hit me right in the shin. Unimaginable pain. I had to go sit on the sidelines for quite a while and ice it. You know, it was very painful. So just any, you know, two players tumbling into your legs is bad. It's especially bad if you're a 500-pound man standing on a, you know, a, a pair of Bama's legs, you know, and it wiped him out. And what's funny, though, is I remember him on all fours just like, oh, man, like obvious, in obvious pain. And I heard him yell, E.B., the guy's name, E.B., but in a kind of a joking way. Like giving him shit. Because actually, he's the one who brought the killer instinct out of this guy, E.B. E.B. was just this big, peaceful giant. And this guy, Bama, he really brought the killer instinct out of this kid in the best way to turn him into a competitor. And that's why this guy was a coach for like decades. That's why this guy, even though he was this mean, big drunk, you ended up respecting him. And he really brought something out of players. And I remember, though, it's like EB did this incredible tackle, like the first time on the team where you were like, oh, holy shit, EB, EB's for real, you know, and they dove right into Bama's poor legs, man. And Bama ended up having to get surgery. He tore something. I don't remember what muscle or what part of his body, but he ended up tearing something. He was significantly injured. 
And then in the process of getting this treatment or surgery, he discovered that he had an, an even worse issue, as you would expect from a guy of his size and his poor health. And they were able to actually fix that. Because he tore a muscle when the, those players fell into his legs, they actually discovered that he had a more significant health issue that needed urgent treatment, and they were able to perform surgery on that too. And so in effect, like having e like like in effect he saved his own life in this weird way that I've never actually thought about until this moment, where because he turned this kid, this football player who didn't know anything about football, just this big, passive, peaceful giant, because he turned him into a football player, this kid made this incredible tackle that took a guy out of bounds and right into Bama's legs that injured Bama. But that led to discovering a much more significant health issue that they then were able to fix. So it's like one of those weird, I don't know what to call that. You know, just one of those weird magical moments where, you know, it's not like Bama was long for this world given his size, but it's like they discovered some significant issue because of that, because of this other injury caused by EB. So just a little a little fun thing that happens. You know, a lot goes on on a football field. And, you know, I, I feel like an idiot. You know, you hear about you you hear stories about like, oh, it's just a bunch of guys reliving their glory days of high school football. And it's like, here I am recalling my glory days of junior high football. But you know what? That was important, too. Obviously, it impacted me. Obviously, it gave me a, these experiences with people and these memories. And I understand now what all of that did. You don't necessarily understand in the moment why your coach is doing the thing he's doing, why he chose to be a coach, why he, cho why he chose to go out every single day. Like you think about you having to go to practice every day. This grown man has to take two hours of his day every day for a big chunk of the year just to go out there and yell at kids and tell kids how to strategize and to train them, to tell them to run, tell them to do this. And then he does it on the weekend too, to play games. And it's like, why do these men go out there and do that? Well, it's like they're participating in this process they're teaching young men something and it's it's not just all of the cliche stuff that you hear about like we're teaching we're teaching boys how to be young men it's like they're teaching you the nature of competition they're teaching you how to earn respect and in turn you you like they earn your respect too that's the strange thing like when i earned bama's respect even though i wanted to hate this guy who is this sweaty nasty obese man screaming at me why is he here that's what i was thinking as a kid and then a few weeks later it just clicked where it was like i earned bama's respect and he in the process he earned my respect you know it's like this exchange of respect that you have with a good coach and you don't always have good coaches i had some idiots over the years but it's really an interesting process and i feel like in some ways it did prepare me for just the nature of being, which is this competitive process. You know, it was like the simulation of what plays out in nature. And yeah, I'm really going off here. I'm really going out there, but it's true. And it's something you will experience in every part of your life. You'll experience it in the workplace. You know, people are competitive about haircuts. People are competitive about fashion. Of course, they'd be competitive about art and science mafia research 
I mean, neighbors are competitive about each other's lawns. But I think you have to see competition as a process. You know, you have to see it as, uh, you know, something that's worth doing in its own right. Because it does push you further. It does help you go out further. As long as you don't get pathological about it. As long as you don't turn everything into a competition. As long as you're not a poor sport. Because that's something that I've experienced a lot in creativity. Where there's a lot of people who are poor sports. They have poor sportsmanship. Because they don't really understand that creativity and art is a sport too. They don't really understand that that's sport as well. Hopefully this makes sense to people. Hopefully I'm doing more than just recalling old memories of youth sports. But those are foundational ages. And like, even though I didn't go on to play the rest of high school football or college football, even though I'm not a professional athlete, those are foundational years. Like playing sports for, I think I played football for... um, I think I played five full seasons of what they call tackle football. I played a year of flag football earlier when I was a little too young for tackle football. So I played six years of football, five years of tackle football, which isn't that much. I mean, some guys play their entire childhoods all the way through college and are still playing today. There's guys my age who are still playing in the NFL today. So for some people, they've never stopped playing football, which is crazy to think about. Um, But, uh, just those five years of hard physical contact of competing within your team, competing with your team against other teams, learning how to understand what your coaches are even doing. Your coaches are earning your respect and you're earning their respect. They're giving everybody a participation trophy, but you know what? Every single guy on my football team, every year I played, deserved a participation trophy. And I would never say that that added to some idea that everybody deserves a quality of outcome. I would never say that that made them weaker. No way. I think that participation trophies, at least in team sports... It wasn't cheap, even though the trophies were these cheap plastic trophies. But anyway, uh, you know, it wasn't cheap. It was a way of acknowledging the hard work they put in. And it felt good to get them. And I could tell that when the coaches were giving their little speeches, it felt good for them to give each kid a trophy. So that's my here two hours later. But, you know, that's my feeling about the whole The problem is they gave all the kids participation trophies. Oh, my God. They gave all the kids a participation trophy, Bebop. They gave all the kids a participation trophy, Bebop. They gave all the kids a participation trophy, Bebop. They gave all the kids a participation trophy, Bebop. No, you know, there's nothing wrong with giving participation trophies to acknowledge the fact that a kid did an entire season of grueling physical activity five days a week, including a sixth day to play the game. Six days of the week, a kid devoted two hours a day 
where he was criticized and yelled at, but ultimately uplifted, ultimately glued into this team, 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 you know, glued into this team that allowed him to experience something he wouldn't really experience anywhere else. Where else are you going to experience that kind of team? I don't have a better word for it. I was going to say like that, that team environment, but that's just adding too much. You know, it's just a, where else are you going to experience a team? And that's what coaches would always tell you. It's like, we are a team and I'm a loner. It's not like I'm somebody who loves being part of a group. I really don't. I avoid it. I am a total loner by nature. It's just who I am. I don't say that with any pride or anything. I'm just simply a loner. And I realize that more and more the older I get. I realize that my default nature is to simply be a loner. I'm a reclusive person. I like to do things alone. I like to be with my dog. You know, that's just who I am. But I look back on that, you know, being part of a team. And it's like, it wasn't bullshit. You know, and it allowed for different types of personalities. It was, I don't know. I mean, I could keep going on about it. I'm going to wrap this up, but I just have to give some pushback on that whole idea that participation trophies were were some sort of unearned congratulations that were designed to just give kids a pat on the head for nothing. And it built their egos up and turned them into these whiny monsters that we have all around us today. And that's the reason why I understand why people rag on participation trophies, why they rag on helicopter parenting and all of these easy targets. I understand why they do it, but I think they're off base, at least in my experience, when it comes to giving each kid a trophy for sticking with it and doing his part. And that includes being on the bench because some kids sucked and you had to keep them on the bench. And that's a blow to their egos. If nothing else, those kids deserve their trophy just for that exercise in humility that they went through. The fact that they stayed a part of this thing that didn't even want them to do much, except just be moral support on the sidelines and be a glorified tackling dummy all season at practice. There's kids who that's all they were. But then there's kids like Kyle Betty who was, you know, had physical and mental issues, you know, whatever. I don't, I don't know how to even describe it, but it's significant physical and mental issues. But he was part of the team, too. He was no less. You know, he was no less than anybody else. And that sounds like a cliche story. It sounds like, you know, Rudy or something. It sounds like one of these movies, one of these dime a dozen inspirational movies. But what those inspirational movies are trying to capture is this. And so each of those kids deserve the dang trophy, Bebop. He says, kid deserves the trophy. That's just turning. I don't know what that is. I don't know what that. <laughs> I don't know what that is. Each of these kids deserves the trophy. Um. Anyway, that's all I got. Each of those kids that I knew. I don't know about other people's experiences. You know, I don't know what an outsider looking in would see, but I can tell you that when they handed out a trophy to every single kid on my youth sports teams, there was a reason for it. And each kid deserved it, even if it was by simply participating, because what they were participating in was not simply nothing.
gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children